0: Consumer Cellular. When Freedom Calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5GB data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk, text, and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023.
2: Today, it's really great to have Nir Eyal on the podcast. Nir is formerly a lecturer in marketing at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and also taught at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design. His first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, was an international bestseller. His current book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. This book reveals the Achilles' heel of distraction and provides a guidebook for getting the best of technology without letting it get the best of us. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Nir. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's my pleasure as well. So why did you write this book?
1: So I wrote Indistractable for a few reasons. Uh, One, I was patient zero here. I I found that I was becoming distracted and uh, I needed to do something about it. This kind of seminal moment for me in my life was when I was sitting with my daughter one afternoon and uh, we had planned to just spend some quality time together. And uh, we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said because when she was answering, uh, I was looking at my phone and (laughs) I wasn't paying attention to her. She got the message. uh, She realized that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was and she left the room to go play with some toy outside. By the time I looked up from my device, she was gone and I realized that something had to be done. And and if I'm honest with you, Scott, uh, that wasn't the only time it happened. And I found that it not only happened in my uh, my personal life, it also happened in my professional life. I would sit down to write, I would sit down to do some big project, and I would procrastinate. I'd uh, mm. I I wasn't taking care of my body. I wasn't going to the gym. I wasn't eating right. And so I thought to myself, you know. Man, if there was one superpower I would really want, it would be the power to just do what I say, right? Like yeah. we, we all know what we need to do. There's no more information gap anymore. We all know how to you know, have a healthier body. We all know how to be more productive at work. We all know basically how to have better relationships. There's no secrets here. It's about doing it. And most importantly, how do we make sure we don't do the things we don't want to do? How do we make sure we don't get distracted? So that's when I decided, you know, if, if I could have any superpower, I would want the superpower to become indistractable. So that's, that was kind of the, the genesis of, of why I wanted to explore this, this domain. Um, I didn't know I wanted to write a book at first. At first, I just wanted answers to my own problem, thinking somebody had already um, done the research and, and written a book about this topic. but. The more I read the, the, the kind of who's who of books out there on what to do about this problem, specifically around tech distractions, um, and I tried those solutions, I found they didn't work for me. That you know this idea of a digital detox or a 30-day plan or you know get rid of the technology, the technology is the problem, just wasn't true, at least not in my case. I would say to myself, okay, I'm going to do that big project right now. I'd sit down at my desk. And uh, I I got rid of the technology, by the way. I got myself a flip phone off of Alibaba for $12 with with no internet, no uh, apps, only text messages and phone calls. I got myself a word processor from the 1990s that they don't even make anymore, thinking, okay, now I've excised all the potential distractions and when I would sit down at my desk, I would look behind me and there was this book, you know, a couple of books that I said, oh, let me just do some research in one of those books, or let me just tidy up my desk, or let me take out my trash, or, you know, I would just keep getting distracted because what I realized is that distraction goes much deeper than what we call the proximal cause. I wanted to get to the root cause of distraction. And so that that was really a big reason why I, I wanted to explore this solution uh, to the extent that I, I really wanted to write a book about it because I didn't see any book that that really worked for me uh, and and really you know took the existing literature out there on distraction and distilled it down to something that people could actually use in their day-to-day lives.
2: Yeah, so you've done a really great service uh, along those lines and I let's really get to the root of this. Um, you know you you talk about like what really motivates us. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So let me let me back up. So uh, the uh,
1: Indistractable has uh, has a few different um, Uh, first principles that we should address first. Principally, what is this word distraction exactly? What does that mean? (laughs) Um, It's not an addiction. That's very, very different. We want to define exactly what we mean by a distraction. So the best way to understand what a distraction is is to understand what it is not. So the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, that in fact both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and you'll notice both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you are doing with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So mm. my argument is that the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. I'm not. This isn't a Bible for productivity. I don't care what you do with your time. As long as you plan what you want to do with intent, as long as, as, long as it's according to your values, if you wanna watch Netflix videos or you wanna scroll Facebook or Instagram, whatever you wanna do, do it. As long as you plan to do it with intent. Uh, I think that's where I differ from a lot of critics out there who have, who have wrote very, you know, uh, moral panic type books around technology. They, they put different technologies, particularly the new scary ones that all the kids are using, uh, as inferior. And and I think that's ridiculous. If you want to play Fortnite or Candy Crush or scroll Facebook or Instagram, whatever you want to do, as long as you plan to do that with intent, there's nothing morally inferior to doing that versus, you know, watching football for three hours. What's the difference? You know, the average American watches five hours of television a night. I would much rather have people interacting with each other online. Uh, there's a lot of good things you can do online if you do them with intent versus just, you know, staring at the boob tube. So that's that's point number one, uh, that what you do with intent is traction. Anything that you don't do with intent that takes you off track is a distraction. Now, to, back to your question.
2: Well, let's just uh, stop there. Uh, sure. uh, let's do this piecemeal. Yeah. So can I have things that I... um, uh i don't want to do, but it's it's in my values, and I do it with intent like uh, you know you gave me an example of like um like well, if you do it with intent and you want to do it and it 's within your values, but like you know like I get like five million emails a, a day i i don't want I would prefer to delete every single email <laughs> yeah. but and not have to do and not have to waste seven hours of my day but, uh, responding to emails. But I actually is, it's in it's a it's part of my value system to, um, to show people, uh, to, 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 like compassion and to try to help as many people as I can. So I do try to carve out that time and respond as many as I can. And I don't want to do it. So the, yeah. the one f- part of it is what I want to understand.
1: Yeah. So there, there's no easy answer there's no magic formula that I could say that I can help you do hard things in life easily. That's, uh, that's typically uh, snake oil when someone tells you – like this is what, I, what drives me nuts about a lot of the literature out there on habits. When people say they want a habit, what they're really saying is they want to do something hard without exp- expending any effort. They want to hack I- it. Exactly. I want the habit of lifting weights. I want the habit of writing a novel. I want the habit of, you know, exercising every day, whatever it might be. But, you know, what people don't understand is the definition of a habit prevents those things from becoming habits. The definition of a habit is the impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. I don't know about you. Writing is hard. That is not something I do with little or no conscious thought. Right. So that's not a habit. That's a routine. Right. A routine oh, is just a series of behaviors done uh, done in progression. So that's th- – there's no promise here that this stuff is going to be magically easy, right? If you want to get better at something, you're going to have to work at it. And sometimes that means prioritizing some values above others. Uh, and and frankly, I don't dive into – I don't want to be one of these people who says, you know, I know what your values should be. I think that's ludicrous. I think that's up for 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 people listening to decide for themselves. What I want to help people do is to do the things that they themselves say they want
2: to do. I want to help them get those things done. Sounds great. Okay, thanks for uh, thanks for clarifying that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, let's now talk about what really motivates me. Sure. I, I want to know. Yeah, so uh-huh. if you think about, okay, what
1: leads you towards traction – or distraction, two things, two types of triggers. There are external triggers, things in our environment, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our environment that composes an external trigger that can prompt you towards traction or distraction. And they're not all bad, right? If an external trigger prompts you to uh, get up in the morning and go to the gym, and that's what you plan to do, well, now it's leading you towards traction, it's serving you. But if an external trigger uh, is a notification on your phone while you're with your daughter, as I was, and that's not what i planned to do i didn't plan to check my phone i planned to be fully present with someone i love that would have that led me towards distraction so i was serving it and so that's the the critical question to 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 managing these external triggers is asking ourselves is this external trigger serving me or am i serving it and so there's a lot we can do there but now we're finally able to answer your question of what really, really motivates us because we love to blame these external triggers. That's kind of the, 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 what's in vogue today is that you know, we love to, to blame the devices, blame the iPhone, blame Slack, blame email. And it turns out that, yes, those do comprise a certain amount of distractions, but it's much more common for distraction to start from within. Uh-oh. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: it's much, it's much uh, more rewarding to blame everyone else for your problems isn't it though i yeah. talk about motivated reasoning right yeah. we
1: we really would like it to be somebody else
2: <laughs> but
1: but the darn internal fact of the triggers internal exactly. triggers exactly the internal what are internal triggers internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from That, you know, you'll be familiar with Freud's pleasure principle. Most people will tell you that motivation is about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, uh, some version of carrots and sticks. But neurologically, that's not exactly true. That really what's going on is that the way the brain gets us to act is for one reason, and that is to avoid discomfort. Uh, The brain doesn't get us to do things that feel good. The brain gets us to do things that felt good. And that's what the wanting system is all about in the brain. It has memories of what felt good and to incentivize us to act, to move, uh, what it does is put us into a state of psychological discomfort, right? So even wanting, craving, desire, there's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically speaking, that's exactly what's going on. So this homeostatic response that we feel in the body is, is pretty clear. We're all familiar with it. If we go outside and we're cold, we put on a jacket. If we're hot, we take it off. If we're hungry, we feel hunger pangs, we eat. And when we're stuffed, oh, that doesn't feel good, we stop eating. So those are physiological responses to discomfort. The same applies to psychological discomfort. So when we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check stock prices, sports scores, Reddit, Pinterest. All of these services cater to an uncomfortable sensation. So that means that all boils down to this fact that when it comes to time management, we have to acknowledge that if all behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management.
2: Boom. I was waiting for the punchline. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Did you practice that one in front of the mirror? <laughs> that's right. How'd I do? <laughs> no. Awesome. That was like perfectly like delivered, actually. Yeah. Cool. You know, that's a really cool reframing. Um, Pain management. What what is the um what is the role of like boredom in in, in, in this in this equation? Yeah. Um, people who are like super mindful, like like practice mindfulness meditation, the people I know in my own personal circle practice mindful meditation like hours a day, they they tell me they, they don't report the feeling of boredom much and they also don't report much distractibility. Those this t- team did tend to go together
1: yeah, and that's wonderful, by the way. I, I touch on mindfulness a little bit. I, I, I mostly refer to acceptance and commitment therapy uh, as opposed that, to by the the mindfulness yeah. world. Um, I, I, I And I, there's many, many techniques out there. I don't go super deep into mindfulness and indistractable. Not that these techniques don't work. I also don't talk about meditation anywhere in the book other than saying I won't talk about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair not, enough. <laughs> not because they don't work, but because there, there's just been so much written about it already. I mean, who doesn't know about mindfulness and meditation? It's just been done to death. And that's great. If it works for you, wonderful. However, I think there is a bit of, of, of warning here that I think for some people, not everyone, I don't want to generalize to everyone who practices mindfulness and meditation, but some people are of the belief that, uh, that you can mindful all your problems away. And I think they discount Mm. the fact that some problems you need to fix, right? Yeah. When it comes to managing internal triggers, um, Sometimes the solution is to either fix the source of the discomfort, Mm. or if you can't fix the source of the discomfort, then learn tactics to cope with it. So half of my book is about things that you can do yourself right? Things that you can learn to cope with discomfort to, you know, there's four steps to becoming indistractable things that you yourself can do, but I'm not so naive to not acknowledge that we work in environments and environments can shape our behavior. So the fact is, you know, if, if you are super mindful and you meditate every day and you do everything I tell you to do to become indistractable, but then your boss calls you at 8 PM on a Friday night. And he says, you know, did you check your email? Because there's something really important you need to see, uh, what's going on there? Is it, is it the technology that did it to you? Is it, you oh, know, right. your lack of practicing mindfulness and meditation or indistractable techniques? No, it's the fact that you work with a crappy boss who doesn't appreciate your time and you work in a, a company with bad company culture. And so that's why, you know, we have to also acknowledge the environments that we, w- we work in. Uh, so I, there's a whole section on how to build an indistractable workplace. And we talk about psychological safety and all kinds of other things that build a culture uh, where distraction isn't a problem. There's a section on how to raise indistractable kids. And there's a section on how to have indistractable relationships. So there is, you know, there, there are things that we can do ourselves, but there's also these things that we have to do within our larger context and environment.
2: Mm. How do you become indistractable against kids? <laughs> against just, kids? What do you yeah, mean? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> kids are a distraction? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. You you have kids? Um. No, I don't. But I hear a lot of people are like, "I would love <laughs> to find out a way to not be so distracted by the, by my kids' uh, wants and needs." And so, yes. isn't that the opposite of what you were talking about?
1: I love it. Actually, okay. So this is fantastic. So I, I talk about in the, in the book. That's not exactly what I was I was referring to. There's a section on how to raise indistractable kids. But
2: I know, there, I know. There,
1: <laughs> yeah, but there is a part in the book. So there, there's three. There's uh, sorry. There's four parts to becoming indistractable. The third step is well, to hack back start external up, triggers.
2: Should we? Should we do all four? Should we? Sure. Do, Cool. Maybe it'd be best to like start with the first one. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, But let's get back to this question on how do you
1: how do you remove the external trigger of your kids? Because you know people think about distraction just being you know their technologies. But I would totally agree. I think kids, your coworkers, lots of things other than technology can be distractions, and there's ways we can cope with that as well.
2: (laughs) Yes, the um, that's absolutely. You know, the the word distraction. It really it depends on like what what do you want to be the foreground? What do you want to be the background? People assume that certain things should be the foreground <laughs> certain things should be the background but yep. isn't that up to the person to decide Absolutely. No, i'm not saying child Absolutely. abuse is uh I'm, I'm not advocating for that <laughs> to of be course, to of be course. clear but,
1: but it's a great point i mean let me let me just dive into the real quick because we're on the point i mean um you know something that i value you know back to back to your individual values that you know, i'm not saying my values need to be anyone else's values but one of my values is to spend time with my friends okay it's one, one of my values And every time we would get together, uh, you know, we all have kids, I have a daughter, many of my friends have have children as well. We would get together and invariably, some kid would interrupt the conversation yeah. <laughs> every time, right? It went, yeah. so, you know, I remember one time we, we were talking about uh, this good friend of mine was really struggling at work. He had started a startup, and it was, it was very difficult, and uh, he was feeling a lot of pressure from his investors, and he was, he was almost on the verge of tears. And then one of our kids walks up and says, I want a juice box, and that completely <laughs> derailed the conversation. And so now one of the things we've done uh, to hack back the external triggers is now – we have, not only have we scheduled time to inter- to be with our friends, it's, we call it the kibbutz. Kibbutz means a gathering in Hebrew. We just picked that word. It doesn't have any religious connotations or anything. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it has time on our schedule. And we set a rule that no child is allowed to interrupt. They can listen, but they can't interrupt unless someone's bleeding. Mm. Okay? So we put out all the juice boxes. We put out all the snacks. We put out all the board games they could ever want. But you cannot interrupt unless someone's bleeding. And then, so here's another way that we we deal with this problem. When we're at home, okay, my wife and I both work from home, and uh, we both found that one of the, you know, there's a lot of great things to working from home, but there's also some bad things, including distraction. Uh, We'll get to office distraction in a minute as well, but when it comes to in-home distraction, you know, kids play a big part of that. So when my wife and I would would take duty for watching my, my daughter, Sometimes my daughter would sneak into the office and and just talk to uh, talk to my wife or talk to me while we're in the middle of doing something. We have a very small like closet little office at home, a little home office. And what we found was that you know so what I preach in the book is to uh, to find ways to hack back external triggers. So here's how we hacked back external triggers in the home when the external trigger is another person. So my wife bought this uh, what we call lovingly the concentration crown. And the concentration crown is this $5 little wreath that we found on Amazon that has these LED lights all over it. And when you turn on the LED lights, it glows and you cannot miss it. And the idea is when you see my wife with this concentration crown, it tells everyone around her, leave me alone, I am concentrating right now. And it, it arrests that behavior in my daughter and frankly in myself to want to say, hey honey, can I ask you a quick question? Mm. When she's wearing the concentration crown, that means leave me alone, I'm, I'm doing focused work. We actually adapted that for the workplace. So every copy of Indistractable comes with a cardstock, what I call a screen sign. It's a piece of thick cardstock that you tear out of the book. You fold it into thirds. And you put it on your computer monitor. Hmm. And it tells your work colleagues, I'm indistractable right now. Please come back later. Love and so that. it's just, it's just this, this way to tell your colleagues, no, 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 right now I need to do focused work. It's incredibly important to do this kind of practice because you know a lot of people think, oh, well, I'll just put on headphones. And if I put on headphones, then my colleagues will know that I'm busy. Mm, Not really. Let me tell you a secret. If you just wear headphones, people think you're watching YouTube, right? (laughs) That's what they think you're doing. So we want to create this culture that it's okay to disconnect for some time during the day in order to do our best work.
2: I love that. Um, You should uh, give those sirens uh, that card. I know, or I'm that, sorry. I'm, One of the joys of living in New York, unfortunately. No, obviously I'm joking Someone's probably yeah. like in pain right now or something. <laughs> yeah. And there's like the ambulance. And I know. Yeah, that probably <laughs> that definitely takes priority over this podcast. Okay, you know, so much to think about here, and I, I do want to go through the four steps to becoming yeah. and this is like that's like, you know, everyone's on the edge of their seats to hear those four. So I'm gonna sure. so let's um Let's, let's, let's talk about some other things first before we get to that, and we'll keep, like, wetting the appetite <laughs> so that when we sure. get to it, people will be so excited. You talk about the critical question mm-hmm. that you suggest people ask. What is that question?
1: Yeah, so the critical question, I, I glanced over it earlier, that when it comes to hacking back external triggers, uh, and why do I use that term, hacking back? Uh, the idea here is that, you know, your, your attention is being hacked by these devices. I mean, you know, I, my first book was called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. I understand how these products are built uh, and they are clearly designed to hack your attention. Uh, that's what they are meant to do. They want to be engaging, but as good as they are at hacking your attention, many people don't realize that it is much easier for us to hack back, that it's really not that difficult to do, that we have way more power than these tech companies do at, at hacking our attention. So they might want to might want us to use their products and they want to build products that are engaging. And frankly, we we want that. Right. you know, it's ridiculous to think, hey, Facebook, can you please make your product less user friendly? Uh, iPhone, you know, your product is so easy to use. I want to use it all the time. Netflix, you make such good shows. Can you please stop making such good shows? Because I want to watch them all the time. That's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. We want these products to be engaging, but there's nothing that says we can't hack back. So how do you hack back? We can morph these technologies to serve us. And this is the critical question. The critical question is, is the external trigger serving you or are you serving it? So as much as people complain about notifications on their phone, they act like it's something they can't do anything about. And that's ridiculous. You know, two thirds of people with a smartphone, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Can we really say the technology is so addictive that it's hijacking our brains when we haven't taken 10 minutes to change our notification settings? So so I devote like a page and a half to that idea of how we can remove these external triggers on our phones and our laptops. That's kindergarten, that's baby stuff. Uh, Of course we have to do that. But there are all these other pernicious external triggers we don't think about. Email, for example. Right. Email is the mother of habit forming technology. turns out that if you combine just those two uh, places where people spend their time in the modern American workplace between meetings and email, the average knowledge worker in America has only about an hour and a half to do everything else they have to do in their day. Oh, my gosh. So that means that real work doesn't get done at work. Real work gets done. You know where it gets done. It gets done after work. And who pays the price? Your health pays the price. Your kids pay the price. Your relationships pay the price because that's where the real work gets done. So what I'm advocating for is for prioritizing that time in your day by hacking back the external triggers, not only like the ones that come on our devices, but also the ones that come from the workplace, group chat, meetings, email. I walk through how every single one of these external triggers can be hacked back.
2: I love that. Uh- and I, I don't know if you talked about that story, but how can you prevent distraction with PACS? P A C T S. Yeah,
1: yeah. So we we've we've gone kind of in in a funny order, but we've covered <laughs> the four steps, which is great. There's no problem. Um, but uh, we've the, done it in a sneaky way. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Let me go over. This is a good time because that's the fourth step. So let me just reiterate the first uh, three before we get to the fourth. The first step is to master our internal triggers by truly understanding why we are prompted to distraction, what we are trying to escape psychologically, what's that uncomfortable emotion that we have habitually attached some kind of products use to. How do we break that bad habit? That's the first step, mastering the internal triggers. The second step, which we didn't talk about as much, but I'm happy to go more into it, is about making time for traction. So we talked about traction and distraction. So the fact is we can't do those things we want to do if we don't make time for it. So the, 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 the thing is, you know, a lot of people complain about how distracted they are, but when you look at their calendars, their calendars are blank. They haven't planned what they wanna do with their time. So here's the thing, you have no right to call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Right. Everything is a distraction if you don't plan your time. <laughs> so that's the right. second step, <laughs> is to turn your values into time by keeping some kind of a calendar. And I tell you exactly how to do that, how to synchronize that with your stakeholders, et cetera. The third step, which we covered a, a bit of, which is about hacking back those external triggers. And finally, the fourth step, and it's the fourth because it must be done last because this is the only one of the, of the four steps that can, can backfire, can be dangerous, in fact. And this comes down to pre-commitments. And pre-commitments have been studied extensively. It's a technique that's been, it's at least as old as, as uh, the Odyssey written by Homer, so 2,500 years ago. And the idea of a pre-commitment is to make some kind of promise, some kind of pact with yourself, with someone else perhaps, where you become more likely to do something when you commit to what you are going to do. If there is one mantra I want people to remember from this interview and from this book is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought that as much as we complain of how distracting the world is today and how manipulative all these businesses are, the fact is we have way more power because we can plan ahead. Mm. So if the uh, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, too late, right? There's debate whether free will even exists at that moment. It's too late, right? you are going to lose. If the cigarette is lit and it's in your hand and you're about to take a puff, too late, you've lost, you're going to smoke. If you sleep next to your cell phone, equally distant from your lover, then you're gonna pick up that phone first thing in the morning. You've already lost. Yeah. But the thing that we can do that no other animal on the face of the earth can do, one of the things that we can do, I should say, is that we can see the future with higher fidelity than any other animal. We can predict what we think is going to happen better than any other creature. So the antidote to that impulsiveness in the moment and the reason why this book doesn't advocate for self-control, self-discipline, and willpower, what I advocate for is a system, is a plan, is planning ahead. And that's what these pre-commitments are all about. So there are three types of pre-commitments, an effort pact, a price pact, an identity pact. And these are three things that we can do to make sure that when the time comes when we might get distracted, we don't do something that we don't wanna do. We don't give in to that distraction. So hacking back the external triggers are about keeping the triggers out. Pre-commitments and pacts are about keeping ourselves in.
2: Nice, well that's good, that's good. Um and that that can apply to to all sorts of uh things that we um uh, are quote addicted to uh, and sometimes it's confusing to know whether or not you 're actually addicted to something. Is everyone addicted to checking their email no okay uh and this is this is a big reason
1: why I wrote the book because I am up to my eyeballs in frustration over the overuse of this term yeah uh, it's it's it's, it's a, it is overused it's so overused and it's and here 's the thing it's hurting people. Because we know uh, that you know, from studies on alcoholics, we know that the number one determinant of whether someone will, uh, will stay sober after rehab is not what's going on in their body. It's what's happening in their brain. The number one determinant is not physical dependency. It's their belief in their own power to change. And so what we're doing when we tell people that technology is addictive, that it's hijacking your brain, what we're telling people is that they're powerless. Right. And this leads to learned helplessness because, oh, my kid is just addicted to Fortnite. Uh, What can I do? I'm addicted to Instagram. There's nothing I can do about it. And that is bullshit. Now, I will say some people are addicted some people do have the pathology of addiction just like some people get addicted to all kinds of substances right Mm. so you know a lot of people have a glass of dinner a glass of wine with dinner but they're not you know not all of us are alcoholics uh not everyone who has sex is a sex addict not everyone who plays poker with their buddies once in a while is a problem gambler lots of things (laughs) that we, we you know are addicted to someone but don't addict everyone why should it be any different with technology so, some people are pathologically addicted, of course. And I think companies have a special responsibility to help them. I've been writing about this and advocating for what I call a use and abuse policy. And I've met with all the big tech companies to try and move this forward. But for the rest of us, if you are not a protected class, so children are a protected class. There the are lots of things kids can't do in our society that they need to be protected from. Thank goodness. And I think, and I, yeah, exactly. Thank goodness. And, and I think that people who are pathologically addicted also should be a protected class. But we are not all addicted. And so we need to stop talking about this pathology as if everyone is succumbing to it
2: because it's not helping anybody. Can you become addicted to being uh, indistractable? <laughs> can you like can this can this be such a compulsion, such an interest that it's like, <laughs> it's you, I don't know. That's just I'm I'm cheeky.
1: <laughs> I hear. I mean, there are there are certainly you know. Th- here's the thing. Any because analgesic. you could be perfectionistic, right? About yeah, and yeah, then that, that's, that's not good. Yeah. So, Very so true. the fact is, so this is this is the the rule. Any analgesic is potentially addictive, and you can find cases of people becoming addicted to literally anything that solves pain. I did an, an article for the Atlantic a few years ago, and I'm not making this up. I mean, look just look on the internet for this. There are people out there who are addicted to Q-tips. Wow. That is not, I'm not, I'm not joking. This is a real thing. I mean, I love Q-tips, but (laughs) I'm not going to say that I'm addicted to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people get addicted. Anything that solves pain is potentially addicted to somebody. Now, what you find is that addiction is never about the product. It's never just about the product, I should say. Of course, the product plays a role. But when we look at the science of addiction, you know, nobody steps on a heroin needle and becomes addicted. That's not how it works. Millions of women every year in the United States of America are given fentanyl, when they Mm. deliver a baby by C-section. Fentanyl, this is the most addictive substance we know of. right? This is what everyone's scared of when it comes to the opioid epidemic. This is the substance that police officers won't even touch because they're so scared of it uh, getting into their bodies. And yet how is it that millions of women get fentanyl when they go to the hospital to deliver a baby via C-section? Because it's never just about the substance. Right, Mm. A tiny fraction of those women ever become addicted to to fentanyl because addiction is never just about the product, it's also about the person and their predilection towards addiction and the pain they are going through in their life that, that they would otherwise not be able to cope with. And it's only in the confluence of those three things, the person, the product, and the pain, that you get addiction. So addiction does happen to, I'm sure there's lots of people out there who are addicted to the internet, addicted to pornography, addicted to social media even. But that's not the the majority of people, and those people who do suffer from an addiction, uh, there's always something else going on. There's some kind of abuse, there's some kind of uh, extreme trauma, there's many times comorbidity with obsessive compulsive disorder, there's something else going on. It's never only about the product
2: being abused. That's a really, really good point. We had a guest, Maya Solovitz, on our podcast about a couple of years ago, and she talked about addiction. So I actually uh, want to direct my listeners to, uh, after they listen to this episode, to listen to that one as well, if they want to follow up on that topic. She wrote a whole book on addiction, rethinking addiction. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. No, it's a really good point. Um, and, but in, and there's even debates in the field about whether or not uh, sex addiction is a thing That's you know, true. or porn addiction, like if that's uh, – you know, really ever counts as an addiction.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I mean in the research for the book, I talked to a lot of, of therapists, particularly those who work with children because now there is a, a designation for uh, problem, uh, problem online – or problem gaming use. Hmm. And, and what they told me was that, that they – in their experience, they had never seen a child. Who came in uh, without something else going on? It was never you know a, a perfectly healthy child who had a perfect home life, started playing video games and now was addicted. There was always something else going on. there was OCD typically there was some kind of trauma, and by the way, this is exactly what we the, 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 exactly what we went through. Uh, 65 years ago during the Senate hearings about comic books, mm. experts went to the Senate just like experts are going to the Senate now to to give these testimonies we've seen recently about uh, how terrible uh, you know, screen time is. And they said verbatim the same thing that we hear people saying today, that it's causing suicide, that it's causing mental health issues, that it's causing this and it's causing that. And it's not causing. It's correlative. Because we don't know whether uh, people who are looking for escape from this discomfort, as I said before, you know any analgesic is potentially addictive to someone, and so it's the same exact story. It's, the, it's exactly what was said in front of those Senate hearings about comic books is being said today about screen time. Not that I think upset uh, uh, that excessive screen time is not harmful. I think it, it is likely harmful. But of course, what we need to ask ourselves is you know, where we see harm is not two hours or less. No study of children using uh, screens, extracurricular age-appropriate screen time for two hours or less, has been shown to have any deleterious effects. Where we start seeing negative effects is five, six, seven hours a day of of extracurricular screen time. But of course the question is you know, that much screen time or that much time with any media is probably indicative of something else going on. And I think that's what we need to be asking around.
2: Yeah, that's kind of like uh, one of the rules of psychotherapy. You expect that whatever the patient presents, whatever problem you know they they present with, is not the uh, root problem. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it always mm-hmm. comes out to be, uh, or most likely, always comes out to be larger. Uh, Laura yeah. Gottlieb talked about that uh, in her in her new book. So yeah, so you're really you're really shattering this conventional narrative that that the problem with distractibility is the gadgets. Almost gadgets have become like the scapegoat. Um, it, it, you know, you, you are pinpointing this inner desire for escape mm-hmm. and yeah, I just keep, I keep leaking that to boredom in, in my yeah. own head. There, there is a lot to boredom
1: I mean, look, it, you know, there's that, uh, wonderful work by Timothy Wilson where he, mm. uh, put, put subjects in a room and, and, uh, you know, they could do nothing but electrocute themselves. Yeah. And it was something like 20 something percent of women and 60 something percent of men would rather have delivered a, uh, an electrical shock that they were told would be painful they would rather do that than feel nothing yeah uh, than just sit in silence <laughs> yeah so clearly i think there is an evolutionary adaptation to boring a uh, boredom getting off off our butts right that's what kept us striving and searching and and looking to improve our lot was that sitting around and doing nothing, uh, if, if the species didn't have this trait of wanting more, of feeling boredom, uh, that that would be not as evolutionarily beneficial as a species that was perpetually dis- perturbed. And so that's why I, I talk about in the book how I, I, I bristle at the self-help industry's idea that somehow if you're not happy, if you're not satisfied with life all the time, that somehow something's wrong with you. I think nothing could be further from the truth. That our species is designed to want more. It's about how we channel these internal triggers towards traction versus distraction that really matters.
2: Thanks, Nir. I appreciate that you uh, you 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 make this like a very fundamental human problem. Um, mm-hmm. I appreciate that uh, for um, you know people who struggle with ADD or ADHD, mm-hmm. they can be stigmatized very easily, um, mm-hmm. kind of othered and they just you know that that tendency that a lot of them have is really just um a more uh, extreme version of something that we all struggle with right I, I think that that's that's likely right. I
1: mean, I think you know, you know, I'm I'm sure you know uh, better than I do that uh, you know some folks do have extreme forms of of the pathology and they do need special assistance. And while I didn't write Indistractable specifically for people with ADHD, uh, I have heard from several folks that there is a lot of overlap with techniques that they've learned to manage ADHD, and and those techniques can be useful as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, and um, in mindfulness has has been shown to be useful. Sure, yeah, absolutely for, for people with ADD. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so let's return to kids for a second. I know that, I know that this the conversation itself feels a bit ADD. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but something I like is how it all like it, it all does tie together at the end, you know, and I love to like call back things that we talked about earlier. So let's talk about kids again and, and the overuse of technology. Um, what are some tips to help them focus in an in increasingly distracting world? Yeah,
1: yeah. So this was my favorite section of the book because it really overturned um, what I learned. You know, I write books not because of what I know, but because of what I want to know. And so when I was struggling uh, with figuring out how to raise our daughter, uh, you know, th- th- one of some of her first words uh, were iPad time, iPad time. I remember her saying that incessantly <laughs> and it would drive us crazy. And we didn't know what to do about it. And, uh, you know, so that's when I, I really tried to figure out, OK, how, you know, if you think the world is distracting today, just wait a few years, right? It's, it's not going to become less distracting. If anything, it's going to become more potentially distracting as technology improves and it becomes more pervasive and persuasive. Uh, that's not going to change. And so it was really imperative that we figure out how to raise an indistractable child. And, you know, so, so, let me, let me just say some obvious stuff, first and foremost. Obvious stuff are things like the fact that if a technology company tells you not to let your kid use the product before a certain age. Please mm-hmm. believe them. Okay? I can't tell you how many people would, uh, I've talked to in, since uh, writing this book and even before I finished writing the book, just interviewing folks and trying to, to, to figure out what works and what doesn't out there. Um, how many people were t- you know, told me how distracted their kids were and how terrible social media is? And then I asked them, well, how old is your child? Eight, nine
2: right? No, yeah.
1: the, the tech companies tell you, don't let your kid use a social network until 13. Listen to them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they yeah. say that for a reason. So that's common sense stuff. And then I think the, the metaphor here is to treat, uh, uh, the, a kid's use of technology in the same way we would think about a swimming pool, that swimming pools can be a lot of fun. And, you know, it's great when kids have the opportunity to learn how to swim, but swimming pools kill kids. Right, kids die because they drown in swimming pools. Now, does that mean we should, as parents, never let kids swim in a pool? No, it means we should teach kids how to swim safely. So, just like we wouldn't, you right. know, give a kid a, a phone on their birthday and say, "Here, have at it, you know, do anything you want," we have to monitor. We have to make sure that they know how to to use the device properly. And so, part of that is teaching them how to become indistractable. These four steps of mastering your internal triggers, making time for traction hacking back the external triggers and preventing distraction with packs. We can teach them this stuff. Um, m- the most important thing you can do is to set a good example yourself. That children are hypocrisy detection devices. Ooh. And so we as parents cannot tell our kids, get off that, you know, get off that phone, stop playing Fortnite, get off social media as we're checking our email. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so we've got to make sure that we become indistractable ourselves. Now those that's the easy stuff. That's the, that's the, you know, 101 level when it comes to really digging deep. What what I wanted to, to really understand here was the root cause of distraction. I mean, that's the real theme throughout the book in the workplace, when it comes to raising indestructible kids, when it comes to our own struggle with distraction, I always wanted to get to the root cause of the problem. And, um, I, you know, we, we know that parents have always looked for the proximate causes. And one of the, one of the most pervasive myths that I think demonstrates what I think we're doing today with technology is this idea of a sugar high. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all heard it, right? That if you give a kid sugar, they're going to act crazy and they're going to run around and, you know, uh, be disobedient or whatever. And it's not true. There, there, there is, there's been meta studies here that show that, that the sugar high is not true. It doesn't exist except when it exists in parents. Mm. That when parents were told their child was given sugar, yeah. even despite the fact that they were given an inert substance that was not sugar, they acted differently. The parents followed the kids around. The parents berated their children. The parents rated their children as be, as misbehaving, even when they hadn't been given any sugar. And so this is what we are doing, I think, with all sorts of technologies, with all sorts of and, – and this is throughout you know the, the history of parenting – Today it's social media and video games. Before that it was television. Before that it was the radio. Before that it was comic books. I mean, every generation we parents want something to blame that's not us. Now, what I think we need to do—it's about time we think about why kids are overusing technology—and this is where we get into self-determination theory. So, you know, I I talked to—I did extensive interviews with Richard M. Ryan, and uh, you know, about his work with self-determination theory. This is kind of the most widely accepted theory of human motivation and flourishing. It's you know. 50-year-old research now, and when you look at these three factors of uh, competency, autonomy, and relatedness, these three things that uh, Desi and Ryan uh, tell us are necessary for human flourishing, we see that children today are deficient in these three things, and Desi and Ryan call their need to find those things, these psychological nutrients, online when they can't find them offline, they call this the needs displacement hypothesis. So, and what we see is, if you think about children's life today, let's take these one at a time, competency. One thing that correlates with the rise of tech, uh, of of cell phone use and, and social media, you know, around 2007, 2008, is also the rise in standardized testing. This is around the same time when No Child Left Behind made standardized testing and teaching towards the test the law of the land. So today, children, starting in kindergarten, received these standardized tests and teachers started teaching for the tests in a way that's never been done before and so kids are told multiple times per year they are not competent not all kids the ones who do well don't get that message but many kids who don't do well are constantly told this message you are not competent you are not good enough and so what do kids do when they feel that when they don't get enough sense of competency in their life well the the tech companies are more than happy To give them a sense of competency, right? If you go play uh, Minecraft, you feel like God. You're the master of this universe. You feel supremely competent. Then take take autonomy. So this need that we all have to feel in control of our environment. Turns out that the work of Peter Gray has shown that children today have twice as many – sorry, 10 times as many regulations and rules placed upon them as an average American adult, twice as many rules as a convicted incarcerated felon. There are two places in society where we are allowed to tell people what to do, where to go, what to think, what to eat, who to be friends with, and that is school and prison. And so is it any surprise that when kids come home after being told what to do all day long, they want freedom. They want agency. They want autonomy. Now, in our generation, where did we get that? We went outside, we played, we, we vandalized things. We did, you know, we, we, we were rascals, right? That's what we did in our generation, generations before. Well, one thing that you don't hear in the current debate around technology use is, you know, people seem to think that technology use lives in a vacuum, that if we just got rid of Facebook and Fortnite and and Instagram and Snapchat and, and, uh, TikTok, kids would start reading Shakespeare in their spare time.
2: Yeah, right.
1: Give me a break, right? (laughs) Yeah. What we have not talked about is that all the other things that kids do to hurt themselves and hurt others have all gone down. With the one exception of suicide, everything else has gone down. And by the way, suicide actually was just as high uh, in the 1980s. It's just that when you hear those, those statistics about suicide going up, they're always referencing uh, 2014, which, which was a, a record low year. So it's just as high as it was in the 1980s. We don't know why. But, uh, and we can talk more about those suicide rates, but if you think about everything else, so truancy record lows, drug use record lows, pregnancy record lows, uh, this was the generation of the super predator, right? There are prisons, juvenile detention centers that are empty. Well, why is that? Part of it is because kids are staying indoors, right? If you wanted to invent a device to keep kids safe at home, off the streets, from not getting in trouble outside, you would probably invent something like a video game, which you know I'm not saying doesn't have deleterious effects when it's used in excess. But you know, if if it's instead of what the things that kids used to do in their spare time to to uh, feel agency, feel freedom, this is a lot less dangerous than other things kids could do. And then finally, the the third of of Desi and Ryan's self determination, these uh, three psychological nutrients. The third is is uh, relatedness, and one thing we've seen over the past 50 years is the utter collapse in play time, in, in what's, what's called free play. So kids today, this is, this is the generation of children who when they come home from school are either you know, locked indoors because their parents are so scared of stranger danger and their kids getting in, you know, being abducted, which is ridiculous. This is the safest generation in American history. Or kids are so scheduled these days between Kumon and piano lessons and Mandarin and test prep that they have no time for free play. So when you don't get your psychological nutrients of relatedness fulfilled, where do you find relatedness? Well, you, you find it on Snapchat, you find it on TikTok, you find it on Instagram, right? Just like we did in our generation when we would talk to our friends on the phone for hours on end, that's where they go to socialize. And so that's the big lesson I want to impart to parents that if you really wanna to get to the root cause of why kids overuse technology, We have to understand these three factors that, you know, this is very old, very established research that kids need competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And when they don't get that offline, they look for it online.
2: Hi, everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break and talk about my new book that's coming out April 7th. It's called Transcend, the New Science of Self-Actualization. Really excited to present this book to you all. It it uh, represents the culmination of many many years of hard work and um, and a synthesis. What I've been what I've done in this book is I've taken Maslow's classic hierarchy of needs and I've revised it for the twenty first century, trying to bring back humanistic psychology. I think that the field of humanistic psychology in the fifties and sixties really got a lot right about humanity and the creative possibilities of humans, as well as the humanitarian and spiritual possibilities. Really hoping this book can uh, present a vision of humanity that transcends us all and helps us connect deeper with each other, but also help us reach our greatest potential individually and collectively. So if you want to check out this book, you can actually pre-order it right now on Amazon as well as other, there's independent bookstores I think you can pre-order it from. And and then on April 7th, starting April 7th, it should be in bookstores. A lot of people have been wondering throughout the years how they can support me and the Psychology Podcast. And here, here's the time, you know, you're always welcome to uh, contribute money to the podcast, to help support it. If you're a long-time listener or even short-time listener, you want to not only support the podcast, but dive deeper into a lot of the concepts and ideas we talk about constantly on this show, this is a a great way to do that by buying this book. So please check the book out and uh, let me know what you think. Thank you for that. Uh, um, That was a great review of uh, self-determination theory as well. And, uh, you know, the big core of self-determination theory is the idea of intrinsic motivation being the best kind of motivation, but it doesn't seem like that is true. That's very helpful when you talk about, yeah, of course, a lot of these kids are, are intrinsically motivated to do lots of things that, are, that they probably shouldn't be intrinsically motivated to, <laughs> to do. So. <laughs> that they used to do in previous generations, you mean, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so my last question, because I'm a creativity researcher, Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in that, uh, that this tension and, and what we're finding in the brain, in our own research, that some of the greatest sources of creativity comes from the indistract comes from the distractible mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying to reconcile this with each other, you know, if we were indistractable 24 seven, is it possible we would be missing out on some really uh, surprising connect- creative connections?
1: Yeah, it's a terrific question. I think it's a,
2: it's a semantic question
1: um, because the way I define distraction, I think the, the, the entomology of the word distraction is never good. If distraction is the opposite of traction, it's, it's doing things against your better interest, things that you did not plan to do with intent. I think distractions, not never good. What I think you're referring to, and I think is very good is diversion of attention. And that is, I think, that's, you know, you can plan to allow your attention to be diverted. If you go uh, watch a movie, read a book, go to a sports game, uh, take a walk, meditate, let your brain wander and and daydream, all of those things are fantastic. That's a diversion of attention that you can plan for. And so I think in this day and age, if we don't plan for it, you know, we know that there are benefits uh, to creativity when we let our minds wander. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, the cost, the price of this progress, the price of having the the world's information at your fingertips, the price of of having so much information, so many videos, so many endless articles. Uh, You know, Kierkegaard, I think, said it best, and he said, uh, that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom.
0: Mm.
1: And I think that so perfectly encapsulates what we're feeling right now. You know, we, we are dizzy with so much choice. We have so many options. So the solution to that harkens back to what I said earlier, that the antidote for impulsiveness is forethought. That if we see, and, and the research is bearing this out, that, you know, letting your mind wander, having time to just think uh, and, and, and daydream, for example, what we have to do these days is to schedule time for that. Because if we don't, it's just not going to happen. So I don't think I don't think we contradict each other when I say that I I, that I think some diversion, letting your attention wander is wonderful. And I think we should plan time for it if that's, you know, if it's according to your values that you want to be more creative, that's something that's important to you. uh, You can have your cake and eat it, too. Uh, But I think that requires uh, becoming indistractable to make sure we can make time for even things like uh, letting our, our minds wander from time to time. Thank you.
2: I, I appreciate that your model still leaves room for the the uh, planned uh, – what, what my advisor, uh, one of my uh, mentors in uh, grad school, Jerome Singer, called positive constructive uh, daydreaming. Yes, so. absolutely. I think there's definitely a place for that. Great. So I like to end sometimes with one of my favorite quotes from the guest, and uh, I'm going to read one of your quotes. In the future, there will be two kinds of people in the world, those who let their attention and lives be controlled and coerced by others, and those who proudly call themselves indestructible. Thanks so much for chatting with me today and and helping me uh, learn how I can be a, a bit more indestructible in my own life. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at the psychology That's the psychology Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the psychology podcast, YouTube channel, as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube. So you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.